0: Our, uh, our lesson, as we continue through the, uh, the, the book of Mark today, is speaking about the baptism and about the temptation of Jesus. I was uh, teaching about baptism. Uh, actually, it's a wonderful opportunity I had when we were living in Monroeville. I was privileged to teach an Old Testament and a New Testament survey, as well as an ethics class at Alabama Southern Community College. As I was teaching through the New Testament, the, the subject of baptism comes up. And recognizing that I'm a Presbyterian, Uh, that we believe in uh, hado-baptism as well as credo-baptism. That is, we believe we baptize our covenant children, but those who have not been baptized as covenant children, if they make a profession of faith as an adult, uh, we will baptize them. And I love baptizing grown-ups. But we got to talking about that, and we got to talking about the the text, and we're going to look here this morning at a very, very brief passage. uh, Because Mark, like I said, he goes through this lickety-split. He doesn't get into uh, much detail. Matthew and Luke get into much greater detail. But remember, Mark is that action gospel, the word immediately appearing more than 40 times in this gospel. But as we we looked at baptism, I remember uh, talking about the different modes of baptism that we can pour, we can sprinkle, we can dunk, right? Or if you want to get all theological, we have uh, immersion, we have aspersion, and we have effusion, But it just all depends on how much water you you put on somebody, right? Or put them in. Uh, And a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, and what I do believe a lot of unhelpful division has taken place as we start looking at those particular details. I would say those are are secondary and tertiary doctrines, important doctrines. But when we, we look at what we are seeing, particularly here as Jesus is baptized, Mark doesn't give us a whole lot here. And uh, a danger sometimes as we study Mark's chapters, uh, uh, Mark's writing, is not to study Mark for what Mark says, but to read Mark and then go and see what the others say to come in. Uh, But I do want to look particularly at the way that Mark expresses this and what Mark is desiring to teach the reader as he presents this account of the life of Jesus. He goes through it very quickly. I think Joe Friday would be very pleased as he gives us just the facts, ma'am. This is what we read. This is God's Word for the people of God. Beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan, and was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. We read in Hebrews that the Word of God is living, the Word of God is active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. May it be God's special blessing on us that that would be accomplished as we study His Word here today. As I said in that class, I was talking to a group of students who were from a variety of backgrounds about baptism and was talking about what all went on. And suddenly somebody's going to raise their hand and they say, well, when, when Jesus, when it said that Jesus came up out of the water, that means he was under the water, right? That wasn't the point I was trying to make. And, and I believe that that is a point that about which men and women of faith do disagree. I remember Baptist pastor John Piper of Bethlehem Baptist Church came and spoke at the PCA General Assembly uh probably 7 8 years ago and uh was very excited because not only was he uh speaking but a, a musician who I, I love James Ward uh was was leading the music and so Carol and I got to the uh the worship service early. And and cuz we staked out the front row and you can tell how much people love the pastor by how they sit on the front row. Thank you. Thank you. But John Piper, as he, as he stood in front of the, the congregation, all these assembled elders in the PCA, and he acknowledged the fact that we disagree about, about baptism. Not on its importance, but we disagree on do we baptize covenant children or only believers? Uh, and, and really how much water we use. I believe the recipient of baptism is a secondary doctrine. Uh, I believe the, the mode of baptism is a tertiary doctrine. Uh, I, but I believe, most importantly, that, the, uh, that, that baptism we hold in high regard as a sacrament of the church. And, and we, one day in heaven, uh, will be able to get the real facts, the straight answer from our Heavenly Father. Why? So we look at the beginning here when it talks about the idea that it came to pass in those days that Jesus came down from Nazareth and He was baptized. When John sees this, the parallel accounts give us this little bit of data, John says, no, this doesn't make sense. You ought to be baptizing Me. I ought to be baptized of you. And Jesus' answer was very simple. He said... Do this now to fulfill all righteousness. In baptism, simply put, we see Jesus' humble identification with us. Remember what we looked last week here in the text. It says that there was John. John came baptizing, verse 4, in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Preaching and baptizing repentance and forgiveness. This is what John's baptism was. Which of these did Jesus need, I ask you? Did he need to be forgiven? Did he need to repent? No, neither. He had no sin for which he should repent. And he had no sin that he needed to have forgiven. The, the proof of this is not simply in that your pastor is saying this, but as we, as we look in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you make a note of these and, and, and study them on your own. Uh, but it says, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, he knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God made Jesus to become sin, though He did not sin. Hebrews 4.15, as quoted in Sunday school this morning, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Keep in mind now, we're going to revisit that shortly. Keep that one in mind. He was tempted in every way, only without sin. First John 3, 5, we know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And even Pontius Pilate, even Pilate, we, we attest to this in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, placing Jesus historically at a particular time, in a particularly place, as a particularly place, a particular place at a particular time, as Galatians says, that it was at the right time. And Pontius Pilate, whom, whom Herod Agrippa I would would describe as, as being a, a terror. He was the Roman procurator at the time. He was harsh, he was prideful, he was violent, he would execute people without trial. He was full of endless and brutal cruelty. And even this nasty man said in John 19.4, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. It's an amazing thing. To hear the testimony of somebody as cruel as Pilate saying, I wash my hands of this. This is an innocent man. So Jesus, what He does is in this baptism, He joins at the time and throughout history, He joins what would have been over 300,000 or so men and women who were baptized by John there. Baptized a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And they would come out there and they would pass through the waters. Like the Hebrews who passed through the dry land there at the Red Sea as it was parted, are like those who were not judged because they were in the ark in the day of Noah. We see Jesus coming to be baptized, fulfilling all righteousness. He is publicly identifying with his people. He's identifying with us, men and women who do need to repent. Men and women who do need forgiveness. Even in his sinlessness, Jesus is the perfect repenter. He is doing everything perfectly right. His active obedience is what we call this. Is that what he does, he does perfectly because we cannot. He's showing that he will stand perfectly in our place. And this is why he's baptized. Jesus submits to the baptism of John. A beautiful example of his obedience, of his righteousness. He obeyed all that God required his people to do. This is vital. It's important to our justification. God treats us, we who are saved, God treats us just like we had lived that perfect life of Jesus. Because on the cross, He treated Jesus like He lived our wretched, sinful life. Do you see that? Do you see that? That's that idea of that, that double imputation. That that idea of the great exchange, the, the incredible substitute, the fact that Jesus on the cross is the wretched sinner, though He did not sin. He is there in our place. And here, in the beginning of His public ministry, He's saying, I am here to stand for you. And so what do we see? What else happens in the midst of this? The descent of the Spirit. We see the Spirit come down. Right there it says, and He came up out of the water. Immediately He saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. It's an amazing picture. Now, the word "they're torn open, or the heavens opening up, some translations would say. I love the phrase, they were torn open. The word schizo, right? That's the Greek word that's used there. It means to rend asunder. There's a good old King James word for you. To cleave, to part, to tear, to rip. Mark will use this word only one other time in his gospel. And that will be at the end of the day. Remember, and Jesus breathed His last, and the temple veil It was torn apart. The Spirit of God, the Word of God here at this moment to complete the mission that God had given to Him. Jesus stands here in the midst of the waters. The heavens themselves open up and the Spirit falls. It attests to who this is. it's It's a public display of the power coming upon Him. The heavens themselves open like a veil that the Holy Spirit would not be kept from Jesus and will not be kept from us. We have that direct access that direct work of the Spirit, a continual ministry in us. Now, Presbyterians, you know, we, we don't. <laughs> we don't give the Spirit the credit. That we ought. We, we're we're kind of scared of that. We're kind of kind of scared because, you know, uh, what, what, what if somebody calls us charismatic? <laughs> Good. Uh To be filled with the Spirit, I pray that our worship would be Spirit-filled. No, I'm not talking about ongoing, continual, open canon revelation. I'm not talking about a continuation of apostolic gifts. What I'm talking about is that the church of God needs to be a Spirit-filled body. If the Spirit is not in us, if the Spirit is not working in us, then our praise is worthless. We need to be... Filled with that joy, that comfort. What is the Spirit here for? Why does... It, we talked... This was a great question. God just... I, I think the Sunday school teachers as I'm in there with with Jerry or Greg or Bruce, they, I, I think somebody's hacking my computer and they're taking my notes because they make all my points before I get a chance to. But we're talking about this morning about the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? It comforts us in trouble. Amen? It, it guides us in our decisions. It enables and equips us for worship. It empowers our prayers. It breaks our hearts over the loss. It convicts us of our sin. It equips us for God's service. It it takes care of us in our weakness. And it testifies, Romans 8, the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. It gives us that daily assurance. That assurance of our salvation. That assurance that we are loved by God even, even in our fear even in our weakness. If somebody were to ask you, well, is this a charismatic church? I pray that you would say, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I am filled. I thank God, because if I was not filled with the Holy Spirit, then I would not be comforted. I would not be guided. I would not be rebuked. I would not be assured that I am a child of God. And we see the Spirit descending on Jesus as he begins his public ministry reminding us that the ministry that we engage in, if the Spirit not is not a part of it, then let's find something better to do. And we hear there in the baptism the voice of God. We see in, in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. A voice heard by all those who are present. As, as they saw the heavens torn open, they hear the voice of God so again, I ask you now, why is, is Jesus standing there? Why is He coming up out of the water? Why was He there to begin with? Why did Jesus go from Nazareth, from the city, to the wilderness to be baptized? He's come to the wilderness to stand in our place. For that's where God finds us. Not in Eden, not in paradise, but in the wilderness. And the reality of the gospel message Is it because of the finished, perfect work of Jesus? Where we hear the words, you are my beloved son. Now, yes, this is a particular, special and singular voice of approval of Jesus as the only begotten son. But understand this, because Jesus stood in our place, we might know the reality of God saying to you, you are my beloved child, and in you I'm well pleased. Does that make sense? For, for Jesus Himself says that there will become that day for those who are faithful, for those who love God, that day when we stand in the presence of God and we hear the words what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? And the Spirit attesting that we are children of God. So do you understand that as this approval comes to Jesus, that we who are united with Him know that approval as well? And even as we we think about the the study again in Sunday school, uh, the Spirit testifying. God saying to us, you're my child. I, I never thought... I never thought I had a light view of that until the day that I was able to look at my son. You know, I always thought I understood perfectly. Matter of fact, before Thomas was born, I was the best parent I knew. (laughs) I was very confident that my parenting skills were par excellence. God laughed. (laughs) And he gave us a son. But I do know... Even as we anticipated for those nine months, as we prayed for some six years before uh, God gave us a child, as as, as I, we prayed for that child, I never could understand the love of a father until that day when I when I saw it. And we know that God gives us that special love uh, for those that, that have children, for those that don't have children. God gives us those unique pictures of what is a fatherly or a motherly love to know the love of our parents, to see it reflected in our lives. But we need to understand that because of what Jesus has done, we are a beloved child. And as He is at work in us, yes, He is He's well pleased with our obedience, but He is perfectly pleased because of the righteousness of Jesus given to us in faith. And so then, again, true to form, what Mark does is he takes us from the river, he takes us back into the wilderness. Immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, who was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. As we think about the temptation, we learn lots of lessons, particularly as we read the account in Matthew chapter 4, Um, Mark 1, Luke 4, uh, the different passages that give the parallel and perfectly uh, unanimous accounts of of the temptation. Uh, we, We read about Scripture being used to fight temptation. Remember, even as Satan was misapplying Scripture, Jesus was rightly applying Scripture uh, to, uh, to combat temptation. We see prayer and fasting in anticipation of that time to uh, be vital that we would always be in prayer, that fasting would be a part of our prayer life, that we would be prepared for those difficult times. And we even see the idea that it is the Spirit that led him into the wilderness, baptism anticipating this, that the Spirit would equip him in the midst of temptation. But, but what do we see here? Mark sums it up in just a very few words. Jesus is taken into the wilderness. He's tempted. Uh, He is at risk from the wild beast. And then angels ministered to him. Um, I I do believe that as we see these two passages given in parallel like this, uh, that we see Jesus as he stood for us in that baptism of repentance and forgiveness, that love that he had for us. What we see in the temptation is that that love for us could not be bought. That... Jesus' love for us, in turn, God, the Trinitarian love for us, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that love cannot be bought. He could not be lured away. What was the the lure of uh, of Satan there? He said, I bet you're hungry, Jesus. Forty days, long time. You know what? It would be perfectly fine if you just said, make these rocks into stones. You are the Lord of creation. It is by the word of your power that all things are. Make these rocks to be bread. Jesus says, well, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Scripture to refute him, but also what we see there is that Jesus, his ministry was not to serve himself, but his ministry, his faithfulness, his resistance of temptation was for us and not for himself. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And what else was the temptation? Well, climb up upon the steeple there, that tall steeple right there in Millbrook, Presbyterian. The, the, the steeple there the, uh, on the Temple Mount. He said, climb upon that and cast yourself off that the angels might bear you up that you would not dash your foot. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen today if, if I were to say I'm going to go and jump off the steeple and do so and be borne up by angels? That video would go positively viral, wouldn't it? The world, the world looks for steeple jumpers. The world looks for, for those who would who would do that. Put God to the test. That seek that miraculous rather than the, the, the faithful, powerful, unlikely source of strength we find in God's word. That we would would not call down the brimstone of, of heaven upon and, and in miraculous form uh, call for the walls of Jericho to fall, but to march around faithfully, quietly and let the powerful work of God be done. Miracles don't save apart from the miracle of salvation. Witnessing miracles does not save. You think about the disciples and all that they saw, and yes, they continue to be confused, they continue to argue who would be over first in the kingdom of heaven, all these sorts of things, but apart from the disciples, who was it that saw the miracles of Jesus? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all those who sought to discredit and ultimately to crucify Jesus. As a matter of fact, when they saw the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, religious leaders that said, we need to kill Lazarus now lest others see that this miracle has happened and believe. They saw the miracle, they recognized it to be a miracle and it made no impact on their life other than to spur them on to greater wickedness. We don't need steeple jumpers. We need faithfulness. We need abiding and trusting in the Lord God. And the final temptation, and you think about this, the temptation of Jesus was an all-out effort by Satan to persuade Jesus to abandon his role as our mediator. Satan pressed Jesus to take care of himself. He pressed him to, to, to do the miraculous that others would see. And he finally pressed him saying, well, look, I will give you all of these things. Look upon the world itself. I will give it all to you. Just bow down and worship Me. Worship Me, says Satan, and the whole world is yours. Jesus responds. He resists and the Satan flees and the angels minister to Jesus. In His temptation, in His temptation, Jesus would not take His eyes off of you. Do you see the personal, the rich, the wonderful love of Jesus Not just in the fact that He could resist temptation, but that He did so because His mission was for you. He said, what would it profit me to have this whole world if your soul is the cost? And this is Jesus. This is the second Adam with whom we walk. Remember the first Adam? The first Adam, and and we inherited... The results of what that first Adam did. The sin nature into which we're born. But that first Adam, what did he do? He was tempted and he failed. And what was the result? He was exiled from paradise into the wilderness. And the second Adam, that is Jesus, goes to the wilderness. And as he is tempted, he prevails. And brings us out of the wilderness into that eternal paradise. Adam had the whole world and he exchanged it for a lie. And Jesus, when offered the whole world by the Prince of the Power of this air, this world, the angel that appears like an angel of light, when he was offered all this by Satan, Jesus, he resists. That temptation flees from him and he sets it straight for you and me. And the angels then ministered to Jesus. It says that God doesn't abandon those whom he loves. He cares for Jesus. He cares for us. The one who stands in our place is the one who says, You will not be deserted even in your time of temptation. My friends, as you read passages like this, I encourage you, and, and I encourage you to do so. I know several folks were commenting on Facebook and things this week about getting in there and wanting to read to the Gospel of Mark. Read it through again this week. Let's let's spend let's let's just really chew on this like that old cow in the pasture. Let's ruminate on it. Let's cogitate on it. Let's chew it some more. And let's rejoice in seeing that as Jesus stood for us in the water and as He prevailed for us in the wilderness, that it was because of His great love and the mighty power. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for these brief words, these succinct summarizing statements from Mark as he reminds us How great is the love of our Heavenly Father for us. We thank you that our Savior, who needed not to repent, who did not need forgiveness, submitted to that baptism of repentance and forgiveness for us. And though Satan had no right to appear before him and tempt him, that we would have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. Jesus willingly placed Himself in the wilderness that Satan would tempt and provide so great a temptation, far more than we are tempted with, and where we fail, Jesus prevails. And Lord, it's because He did not take His eyes off of us. His love that he He pours out on us. We thank You, Lord Jesus, That you loved us so that you withstood the greatest of all temptations. Father, forgive us for failing for so much less of an offer. For so much smaller a temptation. May we go forth knowing this great love. May we rejoice in going into the nations and saying, let me tell you of the one who took my place, who took my sin, and who will not, will not let me go. We praise you for, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.